and Jan Barclay with you for Tuesday Home Time. And thanks to Anne McAllister for the Celtic Folk Show. And I hope you were able to listen to my interview with Anne last week on the program. But today, BDS, Boycott, Divestment and Sanction in the Belly of the Beast. How successful are the activities? And of course, what is the backlash by the Zionist movement and governments? Speaking with journalist Adrienne Weller, who writes for Freedom Socialist and is a member of the Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women on the west coast of the US. The reports of over 60 international observers to the recent election in the Philippines results not surprising but definitely disturbing. Neither free nor fair or without violence. Peter Murphy is the chair of the group who organised the observers and he'll be explaining what they found. Lawyers protesting in Malaysia? Definitely not an everyday occurrence. We'll find out why from activist Lee Tan. More and more commentators pointed to the possibility of a civil war in the United States, particularly as the far-right Supreme Court continues to vote against the people. Human rights activist Kathy Kelly will be looking at that very issue. And the momentous vote in Colombia, South America, the first time a leftist president has been elected. Journalist and author Fred Fuentes will explain how it all happened. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and we'll find out what his week has been like. And all that until six o'clock, and then we have Done By Law. Hope you can stay tuned. A week, Jane, listener, when... Let's open with a little quiz. In the NATO-trained-killing war room in Madrid, presumably with the ghost of Franco guiding them, Trubler was he joined in the attacks on evil Russia and evil China, indeed instigated the attacks on evil China, with the US of the UN of the world's NATO deciding China also somehow poses a major threat to liberty, freedom and democracy in Europe and asked whether Trudeau was he supporting the tough talk would derail the so-called reset of relations with evil China. Trudeau was he said it was strongly supportive of the US of NATO communique. Understandable, seeing as we said it was Trudeau which raised the threat of evil China. So our big question is, was the trained killer rhetoric spoken by A, Caring Business Class Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo Constable Peter Duffer or B, Big Supremo Anthony Albinguzi? The answer, of course, is easy. It could have been either. Meanwhile, our minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Penny Left Wing, was over in Malaysia telling them what a serious threat to our security was, evil China. And back here, the US of, and therefore Trudeau was, he was so concerned at the possibility of China establishing train killer bases in the Asia-Pacific region that the US of, and therefore, Trubler was he, agreed the US of would have to expand its bases here in Trubler was he, and across the Asia-Pacific region, send in the Marines, even more of the Marines, and they said they have to expand their bases across the Asia-Pacific region because no one, and particularly we know who, has a right to have bases in the Asia-Pacific region without blushing. 
Uh, what about, and how's this for a stupid thought listener, no country having bases in the Asia-Pacific region. If they're going to fight over who's the biggest capitalist bully, mine's bigger than yours, then leave us out of it. Still good news for the merchants of death who will be rubbing their hands as they hear the war talk from the Madrid war room, which no doubt they're stirring. Evil Russia has been disturbed that US of NATO has... Um, U.S. of NATO has been encircling it. No justification for war crimes, but no excuse for the hypocrisy of the U.S. of NATO either. So, in response to that concern, U.S. of NATO attached two more countries to the Russian border. Just to make war is peace that little bit more, war is peaceful. Fulfilling the U.S. of promise that NATO would not expand toward the Russian border. Having mentioned Franco, can I, well, it doesn't matter, I'm going to, tell you a story nothing to do with this week. Back in November 1975, in the same week that Kersak Whitlam, Franco died. Well, I think he'd been brain dead for a fair while. And my partner and I were in Perth, and when we heard the news, we decided to find a Spanish restaurant and celebrate. But when we sat down, we noticed the waiters all looking and dressed very formally, cummerbunds and things, and thought, maybe we've chosen the wrong lot. So as the waiter poured us a glass of red, I said, uh, are we celebrating or commiserating tonight? And he said, we are celebrating, comrade. And from then on, we had this wild night with the staff. We mentioned last week how our old mate Innes will cost the workers of the Tublawasi Industry Profits Group is nothing if not logical. Like Innes declaring the economy crippling dollar an hour to the lowest of low paid based on a 5.1% inflation rate got it so wrong. Because Innes informed us he supported the lowest of low paid keeping up with inflation. But the real inflation rate was 3 point something. And so well, the lowest of low paid should have got... Two point something. Uh, keeping up? Well, as we said, nothing if not logical, the old Innes. And certainly predictable. Another of our favourites, Alan Joystick of the airline which used to be our airline, well, it's almost still ours as we seem to pay for everything. We just don't get the profits anymore. Alan gets those, the rewards for efficiency over inefficiency. Thomas staff a $5,000 bonus for their contributions during the pandemic. The goodness of his heart. What a generous, generous, caring employer. Except, at the same time, he's making an offer they can't refuse. Cop a two-year wage freeze and then a 2% wage rise in three years' time. A, a touch behind the projected three-year high inflation rates, but... Alan says if staff reject the offer they can't reject, can't refuse, then they won't get the five grand, which the usual evil union suspects carry on and uh, on and uh, so ungrateful, ungrateful evil unions and lazy, avaricious workers. And Alan says the bonus has nothing to do with the offer they can't refuse, showing that, like Innes, Alan is right up there in the logic department. Nothing to do with other than... They won't get it unless. And as for these delays and confusion at airports, Alan informed us they have nothing to do with the airline that used to be. It's down 100% to the privatised airports, which also used to be. So passengers, stop blaming poor Alan. 
Oh, and did you see another very, very caring employer, Tony Adamo, real name for Kent Pub in North Carlton, says due to rising costs and staff shortages, he has been forced to slash his workers' pay. What's that economic theory that staff shortages will mean higher pay? But but forced to slash their wages because he so cares for them, ungrateful, ungrateful staff said they were frustrated and pissed off. Have they no concern for him? We can be sure all responsible citizens who support good caring employers will be rushing down to the Kent Hotel to support the wage cuts. And what were the rising costs, Tony? Wages, crippling bloody wages. Workers are so, so selfish, proven by the fact they say they're pissed off. What, what disrespect? Doesn't that say at all about the greed of workers? Down the road at Melbourne Uni, more wonderful news. After years of slashing thousands of staff, the Vice-Chancellor, on a package worth about two mil a year, announced a record 584 mil profit. Oh, sorry, surplus. Sadly, he said, the 584 mil was not available for day-to-day teaching, research or operations like the thousands and thousands used to do. Bad luck. Big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital said he would look at broadening the diversity of the Reserve Profits Bank Board, whose current diversity ranges from far right to, to far right, but would not guarantee he would appoint anyone representing workers but did mention that during the nuclear hawks, world's greatest worst treasurer Paul Accord period, ACTU Secretary Little Billy killed them, killed wage rises, had been on the board. So there was no one representing the workers then either, and wasn't Billy's appointment one of the great working class success stories? The ever helpful Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin offered a hint for preventing bacon spitting fat all over the place. Add, wait for it, salt to the fat. Add salt to the salt. An assault on one's person. Speaking of assault, in the week that was sport, the That Was Smart Award of the Week to Collingwood footy president Jeff Nobrain for the very, very funny joke he cracked about serial offender Jordan Degoe Stupid's misogynist and sexist performance in Bali, cracked in front of an audience of women who, surprise, surprise, didn't see the joke. My word, Jeff's made a big difference since they jettisoned Eddie McGuire, you so poor. Then again, I guess sexism and misogyny and racism and homophobia come as a package deal, even in NADOC week. Nonetheless, when Eddie was sexist or racist, he wasn't sexist or racist. There wasn't a sexist or racist bone in his body, he kept telling us, keeps telling us. And we can be sure that when Jeff was sexist and misogynistic, he most certainly was not sexist and misogynistic. Indeed, while the young women of the audience didn't exactly piss themselves over um, over one, one more sensible woman, Lord Rupert of Wapping's in-depth columnist reader Panahai Deep Thinkers attacked the women who didn't laugh and the odd critic who thought Jeff may have just been a touch sexist and misogynistic by declaring he was merely continuing the true blue tradition of larrikinism, having a laugh, just having a bit of fun, and political correctness is taking the fun out of life. In fact, 
Let's not waste the opportunity. Rita, you've stepped up the Feminist Solidarity of the Week Award. Still on sport, doesn't it make us proud, proud, proud to be true blue Aussies every time we see that other serial performer, Nick Kiriozzi Larrikin, display our Larrikin sense of humour, spitting at patrons, bashing balls at people, abusing officials, smashing rackets and decrying how unfairly the world treats him. Yes, our chests burst with patriotic pride. Now, spare a thought for poor A.G. Hell for the planet thwarted in its attempt to demerger, to hive off the highly polluting fossils, making it one of Trublowazi's biggest polluters, under a new benign name and retaining the A.G.L. moniker for the bits that aren't so polluting, with the company telling us this created a tough situation. Uh, what makes it so tough? The fact that the name A.G. Hell for the Planet will still be associated with massive pollution. Uh, but couldn't you overcome that by not massive polluting? Oh, come on, be sensible. Our shareholders have to live. And finally, while caring employers are so distraught at this dollar an hour wage rise for the lowest of low paid, which as it has said should have been 2 point something percent and which forced poor Tony to slash wages and also to freeze them altogether, the latest report shows the retail sector we're told every time workers ask for a pay rise is so struggling and badly to survive has posted record high sales five months in a row. So that's good news for lazy avaricious workers. Caring employers will be telling us any time, for the first time ever, a bit of history that the time is right for the big, big pay rise. Whee! Good afternoon. I don't think anyone's holding their breath to that one. Uh, that was Mr Kevin Healy, and he's back on air again tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock, with City Limits. 3CR Community Radio is dedicated to exploring the issues that affect our future. Because I think it is something we just need to be talking about. 855am. Tune in and listen up. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival returns with a huge showcase of the most critically acclaimed documentaries from across the globe. Highlights include opening night film Eternal Spring, bringing to life an unprecedented story of defiance on the 20th anniversary of a TV station hijacking in China, Australia, my home, an Albanian migration, depicting the stories of three generations of Albanian migrants to Australia, and many more. July the 20th to the 31st at Cinema Nova, a 3CR supporter. I'm speaking now with activist and journalist with Freedom Socialist, based in Washington State, and the role of BDS in the US. BDS being boycott, divestment and sanctions, launched in the early 2000s in Palestine now an international movement which, as its charter states, upholds the simple principle that Palestinians are entitled to the same rights as the rest of humanity. The backlash against BDS in a number of countries is well known and fought against, but today I'm interested to find out what it is able to achieve in the US 
the country whose government defends Israel no matter what. And that journalist is Adrian Weller. Adrian, can we begin with your journey to support BDS and oppose the Zionist ideology which underpins the state of Israel, just as the US in effect bankrolls Israel and has done so for many decades? What's your family background? Grew up in the Bronx to a Jewish family. We weren't religious. My parents never talked about Israel, even though it was it was founded seven years after I was born. You know, so it was founded within my lifetime, Israel was. They never met, said anything about it, but we, I did grow up learning about the Holocaust. So I grew up not knowing or thinking much about Israel because we, we were secular. You know, my parents were not religious. But because I knew so much about the discrimination that had happened, I decided, I mean, I identified as Jewish, very much so because my family, but also what I knew about the history. I only learned really about Israel once I got involved with the Freedom Socialist Party. I mean, really, uh, that was in my 30s. And up until then, it had been something I just didn't think about. And that's when I learned about what it is and how it oppresses Palestinians. That started me on my journal for advocating for Palestinian rights. You say it wasn't until your 30s. Was that, would that be the same with most people where you lived, that people weren't aware of what, much about Israel and how Israel came into being? I can't really say because, see, I, I lived in the Bronx, but I lived in Brooklyn, and I lived in Manhattan. I mean, but then I went over to England for a while. I was in London for three years between, you know, late 20s, early 30s. And then when my husband and I split up, I went back to the States, but I went to the West Coast. I mean, it wasn't like I'd been at one place all my life and talking to people about, you know, what they thought about Israel, because as I said, I didn't know anything about Israel when I was younger, and, or even when I was a young adult. Maybe it's because I was secular and not did not grow up in a Jewish, you know, kind of religious community that I didn't hear much about or anything about Israel. So that might be the reason. I think that being involved in a socialist party, a socialist feminist party, brought me aware of many, many things, you know, that otherwise I didn't know about because mainstream culture doesn't really tell you these things. However, nowadays, I think a lot more people are more aware about Israel because of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which has made it an issue internationally and nationally. It has been something that has become internationally and especially nationally, Israel as an issue and Zionism as an issue has become a very dangerous and reactionary state and ideology that is threatening, you know, people's rights and, and, you know, their rights to exist, not only the Palestinians in Israel and in Palestine, but it's an, they attack free speech rights because they try to tell people you cannot support BDS. Well, there's actually a case now that's headed for the Supreme Court where an Arkansas newspaper editor refused to sign a pledge that he would not boycott Israel, didn't see why he should. He was upheld in that. But then just recently, a court in Arkansas, a lower court, said that 
no, he didn't have a right to do to not to pledge because it wasn't a free speech issue. It was simply an economic issue. So that's probably headed to the Supreme Court now. The discussion is kind of leading me into this because up till now, there hasn't been any federal laws that have uh, approved uh, people saying, oh, you, you, you cannot boycott Israel. You cannot support BDS. This would be, if this gets upheld, it would be the first time there's been a federal law that said that, that it's okay to tell people you must pledge not to boycott Israel if you want to have a government contract or a state contract. So it's a, it's a very uh, serious and dangerous ideology and, uh, and state, I mean, a government. Can I take you back to the West Coast? I assume you're talking about the northern part of the western, the West Coast in the Seattle area. Would you say that was a, a very liberal a very liberal part of America or a very lefty part of America and that's that helped you to understand just the fact that the, the, the cities or the towns which you were living in? I actually spent most of my West Coast time in Portland up until 2003 and then in Seattle from 2003 until current. So yeah, mostly I've been in Portland and Seattle in the upper part, the northern part of the uh, West Coast of the United States. Certainly there's been more of a activism around these issues. However, I literally did not encounter them until I became involved with the party and then and radical women. I have a woman who cuts my hair. And recently I asked her, do you know who em- Emmett Till is? She'd never heard of him. Now, Emmett Till is somebody that every activist, an left-wing activist, he was a black boy who was murdered by the KKK years and years ago. He's, he's an infamous, you know, symbol of racism in the United States. This woman, who's intelligent, she owns her own business, she'd never heard of him. So my point is, is that it's hard to know what you would know just living in an, an area, a city, if you're not attached to a movement. Because it may seem to me that the people around me know about it. But maybe I wouldn't even have asked them if I didn't know about it. Well, people are kept ignorant for many reasons in many countries, aren't they? Yes, that's true. I think, though, there is more of a general knowledge of it, though. As you said, this is more of a left-wing, more liberal, you know, state, as is Oregon. Although, of course, you look under the surface and there's many, many, many problems. But, yes, in general, we are not. You know, the deep south. We are not Texas. So there is that. That's true. And also because people have, and myself included, have, we've protested downtown. We've, uh, did, you know, things, uh, publicly about Palestine and about BDS. So people on the street are more informed because they, they walk by and they get a leaflet or they talk to us or they see a banner. But also the whole way that Israel has been supported and pumped up by the United States government also makes them aware. I think it'd be hard not to be aware of Israel now because of the way the United States government supports them, because of the way Trump supported them, supports them. There's a general higher level of knowledge than when I was growing up. I was born in 41. In the 60s, I was in my 20s. So it was a different time. Talk about BDS and when those three letters came into your 
important to your knowledge. What does BDS actually mean for you? Of course, it stands for Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions. started not that many years ago by a grassroots movement in, in Palestine who were calling for civil disobedience based on the South African boycott against apartheid because they say that what's happening in Israel is apartheid, you know, a separation but on the basis of race. What it means to me is an international movement designed to call attention and action against the state of Israel and against Zionism because of their crimes against the Palestinians, because of the ways the Israel state has killed them, stolen their land, beaten them up, humiliated them, garrisoned them into uh, sections of land, like with a very big wall, a wall that divides their, the area of Palestinians from is, Israel, and also in the Gaza Strip, which is a little tiny land, piece of land, which um, Israel has made into an open-air prison. Their water is poisoned by the Israelis, they're bombed, they're shot at. I mean, there's no way to express what goes on there. There's no way to exaggerate it because it's really that horrible. And the United States stands behind all of it. The United States government, and, and Europe also, but the U.S. is the prime backer of Israel and of its Zionism. Let's talk about BDS and how it has operated and how it's operating in the United States at the moment. Which areas have been targeted? Boycott action is national. It just depends on there are branches in many cities, I'm sure in, in a lot of the cities, and they are. there was a, a big campaign against SodaStream, which Star was backing. There was a you know, a national campaign against it. There's been a fight from professors and universities in order to target the way they've been restricted. Uh, like, for example, uh, last year, Abby Martin, who was a journalist, who was going to speak at a Georgia Southern University, she was sent a contract that said that she had to have a loyalty oath to Israel. She refused to sign it. And then uh, two organizations backing Palestinian rights sued. The courts rejected the uh, state's attempt to have that suit rejected, and they upheld her right because they said my First Amendment rights, you know, were involved in this. And that was obviously, you know, really important. In San Francisco in 2021, the United Educators of San Francisco became the first American K-12 public school union to endorse the BDS movement. They said that as educators in the USA, we have a special responsibility to be in solidarity with the Palestinian people because of the $3.8 billion annually that the U.S. government gives to Israel. They're using our tax dollars to fund apartheid and war crimes. And Cambridge, Massachusetts, Activists have been trying to get the city to cut its contracts with Hewlett Packard over the company's connection to Israeli apartheid. More than 100 people gave testimony at a city council meeting, a group of city council members uh, who were they nervous introduced a substitute amendment with a much vaguer language that it passed. 
but it doesn't contain strong BDS language, but it calls investigation of the city into what the city invests in in terms of human rights violations. Then there's also pension funds have dumped Israeli firms. Cultural figures have refused to cross picket lines. Patty Smith and um, a number of other, you know, Rage Against the Machine, Roger Waters, the Pink Floyd, they have signed letters demanding self-determination for Palestinians and calling for artists to refuse to perform at Israel and Israel sites. It's national and it's, you know, it's varied. There was also, well, there's actually also a lot in other countries, the UK, et cetera. Um, also recently, the Ben and Jerry, who are really big ice cream manufacturers, producers here in these states, said that they would not let their ice cream be sold in Israel anymore because of its, its apartheid. Now, Ben and Jerry, they're both Jewish. Now, this created, you know, obviously quite a stir. The uh, Zionists were denouncing the ice cream. Uh, what happened was Ben and Jerry is owned by Unilever. Unilever sold their rights to it to an Israeli firm. So it will be now produced in Israel. But Ben and Jerry said, we don't agree with this. This is wrong, and we're not going to profit at all from it. None of this money goes to us. Technically, they overturned it with money, but in in fact, Ben and Jerry never backed down. I mean, there's been so much, you know. And also, um, this is about New Zealand. New Zealand, their fund, their $32 billion national pension fund, it has excluded five Israeli banks from its portfolio because of their role in financing Israeli settlements in the West Bank. Have the unions, the labor unions, been involved as well? Yes, they have been. In March of this year, both the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, which is the AFL-CIO, and the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, which is AFSCME, which, by the way, I am a retired member of AFSCME. Uh, they collectively representing more than 300,000 workers in the state, passed a resolution calling for the state of Oregon to divest from the fund that owns the Israeli spyware firm NSO. And then the Oregon Education Association, representing more than 40,000 teachers, passed a similar resolution at its convention. They are following this, the NSO group, was blacklisted by the Biden administration's Commerce Department, which is very rare for the government to actually take action on any of this. And then in 2021, teachers' unions in San Francisco, Seattle, and Portland passed resolutions in support of the BDS campaign for the first time in the United States. I I used two main sources for getting general information. One is Mondo Weiss. And the other is the electronic intifada. I find useful sources of, of news. Do you know of any artists who had planned to go to perform in Israel and were persuaded not to go? Oh, yeah, there's been so many. You know, the problem is, is I can't, there's so much information I can't remember all the There's been a lot of artists who've been pressured not to go and have pulled back because of it. It happens frequently, very frequently. It is something that is, it happens constantly where somebody is going to perform in Israel and then they get pressure 
from the movement, the BDS movement, and they 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 feed it. They they don't go. It's not rare. It's it's quite uh, common for artists to you know refuse to go to Israel in order to be able to uphold the BDS. You mentioned just before about the court cases. Is there a widespread backlash against BDS in the United States? I think the back yes, the backlash isn't from the people. The backlash is from the government. There is a a lot of backlash uh, against BDS. Rage Against the Machine, Patty Smith, various other groups were initial signatures for the Musicians for Palestine Initiative. And an Algerian athlete refused to compete against Israel in the Tokyo Olympic Games in July and braved administrative punishment by the International Olympic Committee uh, because he has withdrawn, eliminated the possibility of facing off against Israel. Best-selling author, Irish author Sally Rooney, respected the boycott and refused to allow an Israeli company to buy the Hebrew translations and publications. There is uh, the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel uh, hailed her for joining countless international authors in supporting the institutional cultural boycott of Israeli's complicit publishing sector. There's a lot of uh, cultural backlash, cultural refusal to deal with Israel because of its crimes. In terms of anti-BDS legislation, yes, it's, it's, there's a lot. Israel's uh, attempt to demonize it has resulted in pushing for censoring Palestinian voices and theirs of allies who want to make speaking out against Israel a crime. There was a um, lot of, well, recently this year, I did tell, did I just mention it, that an, an Arkansas news publisher was told he had to sign a pledge not to boycott Israel in order to have, a, a, you know, an ad placed in his paper. And he said, you know, he, he sued and he was upheld. But then a lower court recently reversed that and said, no, you can't do it because it's just commerce. And this is headed to the Supreme Court. I think I just did tell you that. So there is a lot of backlash plus pushing back against the backlash. 30 U.S. states have enacted some form of anti-BDS legislation. Governments and universities and other international organizations have moved to suppress this movement. There's quite a battle going on, actually. It, I would call it a class, I would call it class struggle, even though it's obvious, you know, it's not that overtly. On the one hand, there are the people working for the rights of oppressed people, of ordinary working people, of teachers and students and private, uh, business owners in order to be able to just exercise their rights to engage in discussion, to bring up issues, and to, you know, operate their business without being discriminated against by the government. And then there is the uh, right-wing nationalist racist movement in the United States backing the Israeli Zionists who want to make discussion of Israel, criticism of Israel, and of Zionism a crime. Do you think that in the United States there's less and less support for Israel, particularly with the young people? I do think so. I absolutely do think so. There has been um, 
concern among the right wing or among the, you know, even uh, the Zionists, that young Jews are walking away from Judaism because they all they ever hear, the only content of Judaism is you have to be in favor of Israel. Uh, there's anti-Semitism. You must be in favor of Israel. There's a, a, a man named Eric Alterman, who's an important liberal Zionist intellectual. He's not a left-winger. He's, uh, he's for Zionism. He spoke at uh, Tel Aviv University at the end of May, and he said that Israel has lost the American left, and Judaism itself is in crisis because all they have to say is you've got to be for Israel. And he's really angry at it, and he's cut Israeli peace organizations out of his will because Israeli society is going the wrong way. This man is going to be giving money to organizations that teaching about, about Judaism and not about Israel because he said uh, Judaism has no answers for young people. And uh, he said this is not true for the Orthodox, but secular American Judaism is dying on the vine. And this is the guy who's on their side. Also, there is the American Jewish Committee, which is also another big pro-Israel, pro-Zionist group here, is now condemning young Jews because they're turning against Zionism. And they, they are, you know, they're bewailing at what's happening, what's going wrong. And the point is, you cannot sell apartheid to these idealist young Jewish people. But they will not admit that. They think there's just something happening in their homes and, oh, if you can only do this or that. They will not deal the fact that Israel has become and is becoming a pariah nation. And actually, to go a little further, 24 senators, mostly Democrats, are calling on the FBI to investigate the murder of Shireen Abu Akla, the American-Palestinian journalist that was just murdered by Israel. Now, this is significant only because the Democratic Party is really not much of a savior for Palestinians or for, you know, free speech rights. And the fact that they feel that they can do this is a sign of the times. Internationally, everybody knows Israel targeted and murdered her, Shireen Abu Akla. And she was a very important, very highly respected uh, journalist. Also, the Harvard Crimson. Do you know, I don't know if you know who they are. It's a daily student newspaper of Harvard University. It's very venerable. It was founded in 1873. They have endorsed BDS. And when they were criticized by Harvard faculty, they fought back and got over 100 signatures backing their endorsement of BDS. There's definitely something happening, absolutely. Finally, Adrian, I would say that BDS is alive and well in the United States and greatly supporting the people of Palestine. I would say that's true. I mean, we're not, I mean, I'm not saying that we're like a a household name, but it's definitely, if if nothing else, I think the attacks on BDS have made us more, not more visible because um, if you're going to attack somebody, you bring them into the limelight if, if they fight back. Also, there was um, another big Jewish Zionist organization is the Anti-Defamation League. And they are important because they put themselves forward as a civil rights organization. And they are consistently anti-BDS and attacking people who support BDS, which means, of course, attacking a lot of black liberationists and 
uh, people who are human rights, you know, and human and justice organizers. And so they have been targeted by people who are in support of Palestinian rights and in freedom of speech. On June 25th this year, a petition was circulated speaking out against the ADL attack on movements for Palestinian liberation. And both the Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women have signed that petition. I could email you that link if you wanted me to. Okay. Final words? Do you have any Uh, more? I know I've jumped around a lot, but you've asked me a lot of different (laughs) questions. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, I guess my point is, is that our freedom of speech is being attacked and we are fighting back, but it's a, it's a serious battle. And if the right wing who have a returned abortion rights here in the United States can get this passed, the one or two things about the Melbourne sections of the Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women, because they are very active uh, in solidarity action for Palestinian rights. Every year there's a protest for them, for Palestinians, and both RW and FSP get involved in them, also heavily involved in Aboriginal rights, who they connect to the rights of Palestinians, and also in the movement for reproductive rights and LBGTQ rights. So they're really quite active. And now FSP, the FSP Melbourne branch, is starting a study group on proletarian internationalism, uh, learning from socialist responses to the war yesterday and today on Zoom. If you want to find out what's happening in Melbourne, uh, Radical Women and the Freedom Socialist Party, go to socialism.com for FSP or to radicalwomen.org for Radical Women and look for their Melbourne branches and that will give you the links to their activities. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. And Adrian, well, is a journalist with Freedom Socialist on the west coast of the United States. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976. Hi, I'm John Harding. Happy Nadoc Week, everybody. I want you all to join me for a special presentation, NAIDOC Saturday, the 9th of July, a radio adaptation of The Dirty Mile, a play I wrote in conjunction with Gary Foley and Kylie Belling. It's a walk down Koori Fitzroy. Come and listen to the history, the characters, the events, the organisations and the people who made up the community of the Fitzroy Blacks. Grab a cuppa, put your feet up, have a laugh, a cry and a walk down Dirty Gertie. Gertrude Street, with me and my friends. The Dirty Mile is being broadcast NAIDOC Saturday, 5.30pm, 9th of July, on the Let Your Freak Flag Fly show. Always was, always will be. Aboriginal land. Cos it's getting closer and closer to its hand.
you know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or what's, whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment. They're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment, and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following. And the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, you've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want them to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. On the program last week, human rights activist Peter Murphy expressed the concerns of many of those living in the Philippines and their supporters around the world as the day approached for the inauguration of the son of the former dictator, Ferdinand Marcos. Today we look back at the pre-election period and the election itself on the 9th of May and the conclusions are disturbing but not surprising. On the 28th of June, evidence gathered by the International Observer Mission were published and showed that the election was not free honest or fair by international standards. This independent monitoring and assessment was the work of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. And I'm speaking once again to Peter, who is the chair of the ICHRP. Peter, before we analyse the results, who were those on the mission? Which countries did they represent? Uh, The ones uh, that we're calling observers, they all went there personally. I'm not sure of the exact number, we're saying over 60, so between 60 and 70. They came from 11 countries, including Australia, USA, Canada, India, and after that, I don't really know. Oh, yes, I know Belgium was another one. There's a few different people from Europe in the end. So I wasn't directly involved in organising you know, them personally, so I'm just sort of one step away from that, that level of it. Were they obviously identifiable? Once they were there? No. Ask them to go as tourists, not to contact the Commission on Elections and to not post anything on their social media accounts uh, while they were there so that they could go to different parts of the country, meet people, but not be you know, uh, the focus of local media attention and therefore become focus of government attention. As it was, a couple of people were harassed, but uh, rather seriously, actually, but the government people doing it didn't realise they were part of our mission. The whole thing seemed to basically go okay from our point of view. But really, I think the international community has to understand that Duterte was allergic to any international criticism or questioning even. He was very strong in his responses, so deporting people was becoming the norm with him. If anyone he thought was asking questions or commenting unfavorably in any way on his government, knowing that we uh, really took some significant precautions to make sure people could actually enter the country, 
move around and, and talk to, to people about and watch you know, how the election was unfolding. It's such an indictment of the government in the Philippines, isn't it, that you had to go to these lengths to report on an election? Yes. I mean, I, I'm so vividly aware of you know, how uh, ferocious and repressive the government is that uh, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised by all of these things, but I think that, again, the international community just has not been willing to sort of say, could this really be happening, you know, despite all of the information that's flowed out over these last five or six years. So I'm finding now that uh, because Marcos is now the president since last Thursday, you know, it's, and people pay more attention now. So, so the Marcos word is uh, a sort of a symbol or a connector to a more... Uh, dangerous or evil sort of uh, perspective on the Philippines. People are willing to listen that, you know, Marcos could be doing really bad things. Well, it's actually two parts to this um, report, isn't there? There's the pre-election and then there's election day. What did they find in the pre-election period? The the most and strongest message that came from the observers was the sense of uh, disillusionment and um, lack of expectation of any change from the elections. <clears throat> and this is from people who um, are trying to change their life situation um, by being a bit organised in their communities. So, you know, Indigenous people, fisher folk, uh, farmers who are trying to get access to land, these sort of communities, um, as well as sort of higher level people in this community like uh, clerical, you know, religious leaders and so on. That's the thing that struck me the most, but they witnessed a lot of vote buying. There was a very open culture of uh, candidates or candidates' agents working through printed lists of uh, names and giving them money in exchange for a commitment to vote for their candidate or a group of candidates. And uh, the next thing that struck them was the, the widespread use of what they call in the Philippines red tagging. So anybody who is seen as a critic of the government or um, agitating for change for their community will be called a communist and therefore they're called a terrorist. Uh, and then there's, there's a sort of uh, machinery of the state which comes down heavily on them and the, the red tagging is like a initial step. So once someone is, is told, is you know, named on a Facebook page of a police unit or a military unit or some other uh, outfit, that they're uh, a communist terrorist, then the people will becoming like um, uniform people, or even surveillance teams will be uh, coming to their house, following them around. Posters will go up, or even bigger banners with their photo on it, saying that they're communist terrorists. And then there were speeches made by you know, from President Duterte down, saying that uh, even. Vice President Robredo was a supporter of communist terrorists. Don't vote for them. All this group of a uh, couple of Senate candidates, uh, a grouping of uh, party lists in the election, they're all listed by the senior officials of the government as terrorists or communist terrorists. Don't vote for them. You know, there was people going into hiding. Some people were saying to our observers, well, when the election came along, I knew I would be in trouble even before it began. So they, they disappeared, really, to avoid violence. So that's how pervasive the threat is in, in the Philippines, and it works. It works because 
there's been too many people killed, too many people, you know, there's about 700 political prisoners right now in the Philippines. So, you know, they, they haven't been killed. They've just been charged with some completely fabricated uh, offence and, and uh, locked up and no trial for years and years. That's uh, how it is. And I think the observers really felt that. After that, I think um, there was a sort of other other level of comment just about the broader campaign that uh, the social media, they, they kept running into things which, which we as outsiders would think were totally absurd, you know, that... Um, the storyline that the Marcos years, the martial law period and, and the other years of Marcos around that were the golden years of the Philippines. And uh, if if um, Marcos Jr. gets elected, we'll go back to the good times. Even more absurd, the idea that if Marcos becomes a president, he's promised to, to give back the Marcos gold to the people. So if we elect him, we'll all get gold. I think this uh, this narrative plays on the people's absolute despair. The poverty is very deep and very widespread in, in the society. In the end, people look for a saviour. Could be, you know, if the Pope visited, there would be millions thronging to hear the Pope because some something good might happen. And in this case, it looks like, you know, if Marcos becomes a president, uh, we'll get some money. You know, that's that seemed to be part of the overall atmosphere of the, of the election and very strange to outsiders. In fact, for you know the observers, it didn't look like an election. You know, there's so much false information, so much fear and so much money being spent buying votes. It just didn't look like a proper democratic election, which it wasn't. Election day itself, Peter, how widespread were these observers? When I say we had over 60 people there, not all of them were there on May 9, but most of them were. They, according to the Comelec, there were 60 million votes cast. So you can see that we, we roughly had you know, one per million. You can't give a really proper quantitative uh, report, I think, on, on election on this scale, uh, election process on this scale. But where they were, which was across um, you know, all regions of the the regions of, of the country, so Luzon, Visayas and Mindanao, they saw every, everyone was at a, a voting place where the vote counting machines, some of them broke down, some didn't work, or there were power failures. There were very long queues of people waiting to vote because the voting system just wasn't working properly. So the, the way it works there, ballot paper is given to the voter. The voter you know, can go to a booth like in Australia and uh, they put a shading, you know, they use the pencil to fill in a box. There's plenty of boxes on the ballot paper because it's for presidents, senators, governors, city mayors and local councillors and the party lists. So there's a lot of different boxes to shade. And then the ballot paper, which is pretty big, has to go into this machine. Unfortunately, at, at that point, other people can see how you voted um, if they're really looking. And, and, of course, there are people looking. And then if it goes through the voting machine, you get a receipt that your vote went in. But as I said, some machines just weren't working. The uh, election officials would say to the voter, it's all right, uh, just give me your ballot paper and I'll put it through a machine later. So I think that was a that was a big failing of the proper process. The secrecy of the ballot was really not, not upheld. And then because of these long queues in several places, our observers saw people just 
abandoning the, the voting queue after, say, 10 hours. Some people waited 24 hours to vote, um, and, and there were a lot of people who didn't get to vote. So, you know, it makes me wonder if such a high turnout was recorded. You know, it was about an 80% turnout recorded by Comelec, whether they were all real voters. It could be that there was a high turnout because so much money was spent on uh, vote buying, but I, I think it's more than likely that there was some fa fake voting registered by various means in the system. Yeah, it, it's uh, just a nut, one other, you know, question that has to be answered, I think. Was there a great deal of military and police seen around the voting places? Our observers in Mindanao especially emphasised this, that there was very many military checkpoints around voting places, so it made it a bit uh, slow for people to get to the voting place. There were police in you know, full combat gear as well as soldiers. There were armoured vehicles, tanks uh, around voting places in uh, Cotabato City, I think, and other parts of um, Mindanao, especially there, I would say the intimidation was really, really heavy. And not only that, what I just described, but also helicopters. <laughs> so you can imagine if anyone had any any fear that there could be violence, uh, seeing all that, they might just turn around and go home. Or they might get the message that they just got to conform. You know, There were places in Mindanao where zero votes were recorded for the vice president, which is not credible. Things like that you know, make you, make you wonder. Do you believe this election was more rigged than others beforehand, before this? Yes, I think so. The main reason I say that is that this is the very first presidential election where the winning candidate got uh, an absolute majority, more than an absolute majority of votes. Normally, you know, there's several candidates and you know, the top candidate might get 30% or 40% at the outside, like uh, in the last election. President Duterte was recorded with about 40% of the vote, but this time it was like a huge margin between Marcos and Robredo, uh, which is, is really very questionable given the history of voting in the Philippines. The Marcos camp can simply say uh, in response, well, you know, I'm special and we were for unity and the people have responded with unity. This is their narrative, but as I said, that uh, the especially the detail of the way voting actually happened on, on May 9, atmosphere of vote buying and red tagging and, and worse in the month of the campaign before or six weeks was, was also really severe. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's very credible at all. What was their conclusion or conclusions, or you've already talked about that, what can be done in a situation that you've been talking about? Well, I, I do think that the international communities got a role to play. We live in a world where states uh, recognise each other as genuine representatives of their peoples. Um, that's what the sort of democratic uh, underpinning of the United Nations Charter and all of that is about. I think when there's something very blatant like this happening in the Philippines or, you know, in other countries where there's a coup d'etat and stuff like that, the international community should respond appropriately. That is, not accept that this government that's just come in uh, represents the people in any legitimate form and there's some kind of measures taken to 
make it clear that that's what the international community thinks. That, you know, therefore, special trade arrangements, uh, especially military and police aid, those things really should stop. That's one level at which people can can talk, and and in the United Nations bodies, I think there's there's room for um, criticism in the Human Rights Council, which has happened and should continue to happen. We we have in different national jurisdictions, you know, fairly gentle but clear cut laws now. These Magnitsky laws, which allow for say you know blatant cases like a general or a political leader who's associated with gross human rights abuses or really massive corruption and money laundering, etc., for them to be uh, hit with some kind of personal sanctions on their travel, on having assets in, in the relevant country. Uh, and and there's, that sort of thing should apply, I think, in this case. But inside the country, I mean, the Filipino people have to live in this circumstance and uh, there is a lot of um, fear, I think, about what could unfold um, in, this, in this next period of the Marcos presidency. We can also be a, you know, alert to uh, incidents that happen and the, the request for support from uh, different parts of uh, Filipino society. It's very obvious with the media, the depression of media in the, in the Philippines is pretty gross. The Cancellation of the broadcast license of the biggest network, ABS-CBN, by Duterte was really bad. And his harassment of the Rappler online website, news website, is, is extreme. And it, it was, uh, it continued right up to June 26. So just two days before the end of Duterte's government, he was, his government was still trying to shut down Rappler. They haven't succeeded, but, um, they, this, you know, could continue on into the Marcos presidency, or it could be that Marcos will try to at least initially say he's different by stopping these extreme you know, moves. But um, we're we yet to see. I have been no relenting as far as I can tell in these first few days. My, I've got a lot of anxiety for uh, my contacts in the trade union movement in the Philippines. The actual human rights observers, you know, in, in the Philippines, they themselves get killed, uh, arrested and, and so on. It, it's, it is a great concern just how things could unfold now. Well, I'm sure, Peter, that this report has been circulated to many people in many countries. Have you had any replies yet? No. Not yet. We've had media, you know, that's what you do expect first. There's this um, questionable organization in in the U.S. uh, called the National Endowment for Democracy. You might have heard of them. So they they have contacted us to discuss the the report. I I think that's what we'll probably have a discussion with them. But, uh, you know, that's that's an, an organization very close to the U.S. State Department, funded from the U.S. Congress and has been associated with very bad um, undermining of governments in Latin America um, in the recent years. So, you know, we have to be careful, but say with the Philippines, they, one of the funders or donors, I think, to RAPLA, um, and they support some journalist organisations. We'll just listen to what they've got to say, I think. Um, And I, I just think that's an indication that, I could comment on this this aspect. At the inauguration of um, Marcos last Thursday, Australia was represented by the Governor-General. That was the most senior uh, international figure present. 
The United States didn't even send a political leader. They sent the husband of Vice President Harris. So I think they were very much going to keep in distance from this uh, Marcos presidency at this point. So I think that you know they they have got some uncertainty about how to you know manage or yeah operate the the relationship with this new government. They didn't seem to have so many problems with Duterte, which you know I find very shocking. Anyway, there's some nuance going on here, and I, and I do think any government, you know, the Japanese, the Australians, uh, the Canadians, would be more careful with a Marcos presidency because of the notoriety of his father than they they were with Duterte, who was a relative unknown until he hit the scene. We will pursue that angle. But I think uh, our main work will continue to be with uh, more grassroots community organisations in the Philippines. Thanks, Peter. Okay, Jan. Thank you very much for this. And I've been speaking with Peter Murphy, who's the chair of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. This deal really accentuates and is very complementary to the white Australian domestic policy. Here you have not only a white alliance, but an Anglo-Saxon alliance of the ultimate cultural allies of the United States banding together. And the significance that it is aimed at colored peoples, at Asian peoples, at Pacific peoples, This is injecting a horrible racial dimension to this conflict. So I think the U.S. and Australian elites' racist military policies are complementing the increasingly racist domestic policies. So I think, therefore, we really have to look out very, very carefully at this very dangerous synergy between racism on the military front and racism on the domestic front. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 03-9419-8377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2022. 3CR. Keep community strong. Last month, hundreds of Malaysian lawyers staged a protest to condemn the anti-graft agency's unprecedented probe into a senior judge. 
the judge who convicted former Prime Minister Najib Razak, calling it a threat to judicial independence. I asked Malaysian-born activist Lee Tan what was behind the protest. In more detail. So in mid-June, the Bar Council organised a protest action against the persecution of a senior judge who previously charged the former Prime Minister Najib Reza for his scandalous involvement in the 1MDB financial scandal. The government, which ousted the popularly elected Pakatan Harapan government, is now led by what we call the court, or what in Malaysian call, the court cluster. They are minister and senior politicians who are linked with a whole series of corruption scandals. And these are the people who are now in government, and including the king, Agong, who is from the state of Pahang, where Najib is originally from. They are very powerful in Malaysian politics now. And they basically can do whatever they like to an extent. And they are referring the High Court Judge Mohammad Nazlan Ghazali, the Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission, alleging that he received $1 million in his account. I mean, whether he received that or whether it was a plant, a plot, you know, to try and defame him and, and, uh, you know, ousting from the the High Court is um, yet to be investigated. But, you know, by referring him to MACC, which is the Anti-Corruption Commission, in itself has already, you know, tarnished his reputation as a judge. And this is not an isolated incident. The high-profile senior judges and also people in the prosecution team of the former government for example, uh, Attorney General, former Attorney General Tommy Thomas, too, was being kind of dragged into the mud through all kinds of false allegations. And same, the Chief Public Prosecutor of the previous government, Gopa Sriram. And these are very highly reputable and credible people from uh, legal fraternity, and yet, you know, they're being dragged, their names being dragged out of mud deliberately by this so-called court cluster in Malaysia. How does this affect the decisions that this judge has made in the past, particularly the one against Najib? At this stage, those charges still stand, and even though, you know, the court cluster are in power, they could not actually just overturn all these judgment overnight. In fact, it's not just Najib, but, you know, the other people, basically all the people in the court cluster, they've all been charged under the previous government, Papatan Harapan, and they're trying to slowly, slowly overrule some of those judgments to free themselves of corruption charges. So, so far, Najib charges are still in effect. Although he's appealed um, again, you know, to the court, and and it has yet to be rescinded or at least overturned. Where does all this leave the judicial system in Malaysia? I mean, the judiciary system in Malaysia has already been weakened since 
Mahatu was in power back in the uh, in the eighties, nineties, and and this is another attack to the already weakened judiciary system. There are still decent judges in Malaysia, which is why those court cluster politicians have not yet got away from their charges. But you know, if this continues, if the public kept quiet about it. And has not, you know, voiced out. It will get worse. The next election is coming up soon, later this year. You know, the election outcome too, of course, will determine the direction of Malaysia's judiciary. Whether it's going to get even worse, or it's going to, you know, it, there may be a slim hope of a change of government. But that's not easy. It will be an uphill battle. Has any of the one MDB millions or billions been recovered? Um, so, yeah, well, Goldman Sachs has um, actually quickly refunded Malaysia immediately after the coup uh, in back in 2020. Um, and, you know, according to Tommy Thomas, the former Attorney General, the amount was much less than what you would expect Malaysia should get. Um, but, you know, we, we knew that's probably a negotiated outcome. Um, and given this court cluster run government, um, they would compromise, you know, for the sake of um, themselves getting exposed. So, you know, they would negotiate with, um, yeah, any, anybody that's involved in the crime. So, and that's the outcome. Um, so Malaysia's basically been shortchanged because of this um, lot of court class, the politicians uh, being in power. The next issue concerning the law in Malaysia is the death penalty. There are changes to the law, but it's not a blanket yes. stopping of the penalty, is it? No, it isn't. Before, there are a list of 23 capital crimes punishable um, by death in Malaysia. Since 2018, when the popularly elected uh, Pakatan Harapan came into power at that time, they instituted an inquiry into the death penalty in Malaysia. And this is where we're at now. In fact, they have placed a moratorium since 2018 to stop any death penalty prisoner from being executed. At the moment, they've reduced from 33 capital crimes, exempted 11 capital crimes from the 33. And, and that's kind of including the acts against terrorism and uh, some rape uh, against children and, uh, uh, you know, and causing death uh, and, and rape death or people involved in rape death. But there are still the 22 remaining. An entire abolition but it's a step in the right direction. You know, hopefully they will eventually abolish capital punishment uh, altogether. But that's a result of the popularly elected government doing their work and, and committing to restoring some form of human rights for Malaysia. How long have 33 crimes been on the books? 
they've been around, I think, for a long time. Uh, they're at the moment 1,300 convicted prisoners, uh, you know, for capital punishment. Um, and apparently, according to the media, they're mostly of the ethnic uh, minority. And, yeah, and, and including people with disabilities and people with serious mental health illness and so on and so forth. So, you know, from human rights ground, they actually should have their sentences reviewed uh, on a case-by-case basis. Under the current amendment um, to the capital punishment practice in Malaysia, the judges are now given discretion to mitigate the situation and also to, to seek alternative punishment for their clients. A different look at Malaysia and this involves Australia, I and mean, it also involves the United States. We've got Linus yes. Rare Earths, and we've got the Pentagon. Absolutely. As we might, you know, we have discussed in the past, um, Linus is an Australian rare earth company. Uh, we have mined in Western Australia, and has since uh, 2011 sent its Lanthanite concentrate, which is the rare earth concentrate to Malaysia in the city of Kuantan, actually, for processing. And from it, it has left over 1 million tons of radioactive waste in the open, subject to weather conditions, which would be uh, impossible for Australia, because um, I, through AidWatched, Australia have been involved in the consultation uh, in Linus newly, uh, well, current proposed construction project in Kalgoorlie Boulder to build a similar kind of um, cracking and leaching plant to process its rare concentrate instead of uh, doing it in Malaysia. In Australia, they would have to send all the radioactive waste, including one which is slightly contaminated but not classified as radioactive, back to the Mount Well mined for disposal and managed as a low-level radioactive waste. But in Malaysia, Linus has simply proposed to, and, and actually approved by the uh, government, in a peat swamp and also in a waste disposal facility that's not designed to withstand the weathering condition and also the environmental conditions. Now, Despite all of that, Linus has got funding from the U.S. through the Pentagon. Initially, a couple of years ago, for $30 million U.S., and recently for another $120 million U.S. because of its strategic and, and uh, critical uh, importance in the manufacturing of high-power advanced technology weapons. Yeah, and, and even under the former Australian government, under Scott Morrison, Linus has also gained funding from um, the Morrison government for about 14 million Australians. So this company that has appalling environmental uh, records in Malaysia, you know, given all these millions of funding because of, you know, warmongering politicians, uh, wanting to have control over this strategic mineral. And that's actually outrageous, but yet it's acceptable under the current um, geopolitical context. Has the 
board of Linus Rare Earths been challenged by any anyone in Australia about the conduct of the disposal plant in Kwantan? No. Well, basically, in Australia, because of the nuclear uranium issues, the kind of radioactive waste problem Linus Generator hasn't actually gotten as much publicity and also support from civil society. It has been really difficult even for Aid Watch Australia to get support both in terms of financial and also public support on this issue. It's kind of being buried behind all of the other issues on uranium mining, on uh, nuclear submarine, and on our own radioactive waste dump issues in, in uh, South Australia. Yeah, it, it hasn't been an easy campaign in Australia, even though in Malaysia it was one of the biggest and most uh, widespread um, environmental campaigns. So where do the people in Kwantan go now? You know, they have protested, they have campaigned for over a decade. And, you know, some of the people are tired. I know some of the senior campaigners, they're retirees, and um, some of them are getting unwell. One even died from ill health and old age. You know, they, they have far judiciary review in the, through the Malaysian court. But as you know, you know, the country is run by the court cluster kind of corruption allegations in every aspect, including the Linus project. It's really difficult and also it's in the state of Pahang where the king is linked also politically with the current prime minister and also Najib Razak. So as you can imagine, you know, in, in a country like Malaysia where feudalism seems to still rule, it's um, rather challenging to get justice for environmental cases. I mean, even corruption cases has been challenging, as, as we have discussed earlier. So you can imagine what it's like for the people. There's been contamination, evidence, uh, and yet the government hasn't actually investigated about it and leaving the environment to be contaminated, including, you know, radioactive elements, top of um, toxic heavy metals. Finally, Lee Tan, I'd imagine that you might find it a bit difficult to go back home these days with your activism. Uh, well, I hope I can still go. I mean, Peter, you know, with the COVID, it hasn't been easy anyway. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not that concerned about that. Basically, I just take it one step at a time. And if anything happened to me, I hope people like you <laughs> will help to feed me. <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, there's a toll when you are involved in activism in a country like Malaysia. <laughs> but I, I'm sure there are other people who are much more targeted than I am. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, you just take, take it one step at a time and do what is right. That's all we can do. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. And I was speaking there with human rights and environmental activists, Lee Tan.
Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra Group is having its Australian Plants Expo on the 27th to 28th of August, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Huge native plant fair. Thousands of native plants, including grafted, uncommon species and indigenous plants with books on related subjects, crow's foot pottery, gift stalls, native flower displays and activities for children. Refreshments will also be available. Wheelchair friendly, adults at $5, concessions $4 and children free. Check out our website for plant lists, apsyarayarra.org.au forward slash Australian Plants Expo. A 3CR supporter. Have you had your COVID-19 booster vaccine? The Murdoch Children's Research Institute, located at Royal Children's Hospital, are looking for people aged 18 years or older who have not yet received a COVID-19 booster vaccine to participate in the COVID-19 booster trial. You will either be given a standard or reduced dose Pfizer or Moderna booster and you will receive your antibody test results. For more information, contact covid.booster at mcri.edu.au. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute is a 3CR supporter. There are many commentators around the world speaking about the situation in the US and I'll just mention two. One is an Australian blogger now living in the US, Caitlin Johnson, and the second, Stephen Marsh, in the US. First to Caitlin. It sure is mightily convenient timing for all political and electoral energy in the United States to suddenly get sucked up into a single issue which affects the powerfuls in no way, shape or form. I wouldn't have thought it would be possible for everyone's attention to get devoted away from inflation and the looming likelihood of wage reductions and soaring unemployment or the economic war with Russia that's making everything worse for everyone, while pouring vast fortunes into the proxy war in Ukraine. But by golly, the empire found a way. And to Stephen Marsh, with the end of Roe, the US edges closer and closer to civil war. The question is no longer whether there will be a civil conflict in America. The question is how their sides will divide and who will prevail. And of course there's much more with the stacking of the Supreme Court and religious fundamentalism. I spoke with activist Kathy Kelly and asked her how she's feeling about the situation in the US at the moment. Well, it certainly is a worrying time and it would seem that there are some very vulnerable groups who might have thought that they had reached kind of a safer ground who are now going to feel the ground being pulled out from under them. I think uh, so many of the people who entered into gay marriages might suddenly find themselves threatened. And and then this kind of gives a green light to people who struggle with severe mental illness to think, well, it's okay to attack people who are already stigmatized. And so you have to worry for what's going to happen to people who are seeking refuge in the United States. What's going to happen to the many people whose lives can be lost because of new gun laws? and making it more acceptable to carry firearms. There are a lot of people in the United States who don't want to be governed in this way. But I have to say that generally, whether Republican or Democrat, 
What we find in the United States is that it's the top corporate executives, the people with a great amount of money who tend to run the country. There's so much of violent cruelty that's accepted every day on the part of those top corporations that in a way it's hard for me to imagine that people, even liberal Democrats, would be so upset that they would rise up. And I mean, when you think about it, every single day, the United States is, without any policing, without any question, shipping weapons, horrible weapons that maim and kill and destroy and displace all over the world. I mean, just since the Ukraine war began, we've shipped $6.9 billion worth of weapons to rip people apart in that part of the world. And And there's no monitoring of it or policing of it or surveillance of it or stigmatizing of it. It just gets celebrated as this is the way things are. I'm quite nervous about how willingly United States people will accept killing and maiming and murderous destruction. What are your feelings about the January 6th hearings? It's good to me to see that there has been so much energy put into careful, systematic, thorough investigation. And I think some people who have accommodated themselves to the Republican Party and thought, well, you know, this is an event that's going to pass by. I think that there are some who, even amongst Fox News adherents, are starting to say, you know what, this is pretty bad. So that's, I think, all power to Liz Cheney and others who've, who've shown some courage in speaking up. But I do want to say that, you know, when President Biden had said of the January 6th insurrection, this is not who we are. I have to beg to differ. It certainly is who we are. We are a group of people who have been marauding in the capitals of other countries all around the world, who have been breaking other people's precious belongings and displacing them and acting like this is just fine. Why worry? What about the poison many people say of white supremacy? Well, since the founding groups of people that had land and had slaves and had indentured servants, you know, if you go back to the original founders, they were white supremacists without question and often misogynists, and they bought and sold human beings. They were slaveholders. Most of the big corporations at that time of the earliest development of this country were run by people who treated people of color as though they were people who didn't have any kind of an automatic right to food or housing or education, much less equality. Now, add into that that there was a genocide and a slaughter and takeover of almost every part of this land as the the people who originally lived here were overcome by massive imbalance in terms of weapon strength. And that imbalance, that military force that was so much stronger, had nothing to do with respect for human rights or human survival of the people who actually owned this land, a terrible treatment of indigenous people who uh, to this day are still treated very shabbily and are never given fair reparations for the land that was stolen from them and the trauma inflicted on them through genocide. Is there a general fear that Trump will return? You know, I, again, I think if you read the liberal press, there's 
more of a kind of hurrah, you know, he can't possibly be Teflon with this one. It's not going to shake off. It's, he's, he, this is going to be a killer, they'll say. But I don't know. I mean, I think that there are many, many people who still attend rallies and his, um, you know, opinion poll scores are not really that bad. And I don't think that President Biden will distinguish himself as a president who lots of people want to see restored because economically a lot of people, I'm sorry, restored to power because economically a lot of people have suffered and people do tend to vote their pocketbooks in this country. And he has failed to fulfill numerous campaign promises. So egregious right now to me is his promise to treat Saudi Arabia as a pariah state, not only because of the killing of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, but also um, because of the terrible devastation of Yemen. And now he's going to greet Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman and has already set up deals with Prince Mohammed Zayef of the United Arab Emirates as though somehow concerns of people in Yemen are just too small to deal with when you're looking at big deals that might help rescue his campaign for a future presidency if he can fix up the situation with regard to oil availability. Can you talk a little more about the abortion issue? To my mind, Jan, that issue should never have been in the courts or the clergy's province for decision-making. It's a decision, I believe, that belongs to a woman and possibly to her partner, but to the person whose body would be nurturing the growth of another human being inside her body. That's a very, very personal, tender question, and whether or not the woman can care for a new human being coming into this world. You know, you might want to say, well, it's a communal question, but then that's the choice of the woman to designate what kind of community she wants to to turn to. I don't understand why that question should be decided by the impersonal and often very manipulable courts of public opinion or of clerical opinions of any religious grouping or of political opinions from the U.S. House and Senate. I I don't buy the idea that somehow the Supreme Court has a right to interpret what the Founding Fathers meant when they set up the Constitution. I mean, why would people's rights today be decided by what people were thinking hundreds of years ago who didn't face anything like the situations people face today? And also, if you look at it that way, you've got climate change and the Supreme Court and people a couple of hundred years ago wouldn't have thought about that either. And, well, similarly, I think the whole issue of gun control, I, mm. I, 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 I don't get it. I don't see why it makes so much sense to keep reverting back to what was on the minds of people who wrote documents, but then, you know, like, for instance, Jan, I, I have a master's degree in religious studies, and most of what I studied was scripture. And it was so interesting to place those scriptures in their historical context and to try to understand, okay, what was going on at that time. But no way would you say that, you know, all of that had to suddenly be interposed as though it immediately should be 
relevant to our time. Of course, you had to understand nuance and history and redaction criticism. I mean, this is what scholars do. But it seems to me that there's a whole school of legal scholarship that just throws all of that out the window and says in a very narrow-minded, fundamentalist way, we're only going to ask, is this what the founding fathers said? Gun control, it's a terrible issue in the United States, isn't it? And I, I remember reading a while ago talking about the difference between the US and Canada in the number of guns and the number of people dying, and it's just astronomical difference, isn't it? The two countries side by side virtually. And it's so foolhardy. The bullets are still sold. The gun shops are still open. And I think it's a reflection of the militarism that's so much a part of our our governing systems. I mean, when you're the country that sends more weapons around the world to every other country in the world than any other country, then you can kind of presume that that's going to have a trickle-down effect. And so the major companies that sell weapons and market weapons, make profits from all these different firearms, they can afford to hire lobbyists and have a pretty vice-like grip on um, many of the people that want to be reelected for public office. And then also in our school systems, the kids are taught in schools all across the United States, across my city, where the gun violence is perhaps the worst in the country. The high schoolers are taught how to be down on their bellies firing firearms, and that doesn't even begin to touch all of the entertainment with video games that teach kids to be killers. So we we bring this upon ourselves, and often people think, well, it's not my problem. It's just those neighborhoods where people don't know how to raise their kids. But that is certainly beginning to change. I mean, here in Chicago, we see that probably for a number of reasons, but quite possibly because of the rising violence in the uh, areas of the city that are considered to be, you know, like the Magnificent Mile, the place where the rich people would go and live, um, people don't want to live there anymore because there had been killings, break-ins, and robberies. But that was predictable. And so anyway, those major companies, several of them, have decided to move out of the Chicago area. Now, that's going to lower the amount of taxable you know, income that can be bought in to help build up social services in Chicago. So I'm not happy to see the tax base shrinking. But, you know, it, it, it does seem like it's kind of an exemplary of that old adage that eventually the chickens will come home to roost. The recent devastation in Afghanistan, it's a, a country that's been brought to its knees by decades of foreign intervention. And as you spoke just a moment ago about the weapons that are now in Afghanistan, the youth and the children and women, of course, always now in wars are the main victims. But you've been talking, or you've got stories about the youth, and they go back to seven years ago, some of the children you knew at that time. Can you tell the stories? Well, you know, Jen, I was so touched following the Uvalde massacre of children in the United States in their schoolroom when one of those young friends wrote to me, and he asked, how can we help comfort the mothers and fathers in your country? You know, mind you, his own brother had been killed in the last years of the Taliban warring with the Afghan uh, National Defense Force. His brother had signed up. It was like 
you know, like our poverty draft here, he didn't want to kill anybody, but he couldn't figure out another way to put food on the table. So his own mother, Ali's mother, will always lament the loss of Ali's older brother. But anyway, Ali asked that question. So I wrote back and said, Ali, do you remember when with the street kids school, the youngsters you tutored, you collected every toy gun that all of you could get your hands on? You you had quite a pile. And all of you got together and dug a big grave and you buried those guns. And then on top of the grave of guns, you planted a tree. Do you remember that? And then that woman who was down the way saw what you were doing and she knew she didn't know any of you, but she came running and said, let me help, let me help. And I thought that was such a telling story for what could be done, you know, bury the guns and plant a tree. And and I think about how dedicated they were to permaculture and healing the ground and regenerating the land. But, you know, in actuality, Jen, what's buried under the soil right now in so much of Afghanistan is the unexploded ordnance, the leftover duds and weapons that didn't explode but still can explode. So the Emergency Surgical Centers for Victims of War put out statistics quite regularly. And right now they're saying that from September 2021 until March of 2022, just in their hospitals alone, the three major hospitals in Afghanistan, 549 patients came to the hospital because of injuries caused by explosive violence. And that was nearly three patients every day just in April of 2022. And then they said that when it comes to landmines that explode, 63 out of 120 landmine victims who were received by the emergency hospitals just in that period that I mentioned, that one-year period, were under 18 years of age. The war isn't over when it's over. The weapons keep killing people. The decision by the United States to freeze Afghanistan's assets has caused tremendous suffering and displacement and hunger. One million Afghan children now have SAM, severe acute malnourishment. They'll never recover from it. And and literally every day, I and others in an ad hoc community of internationals trying to assist as best we can get please not please will you but imploring letters the pleas that the children that we know write uh, can you help our parents can you help us eat i uh, one uh, young friend of mine was part of the street kids school and he's in india now he was able to get over to india and he's studying and he's quite young. He hasn't even finished his high school years. And he, he wrote and said, please, please, my my mother and father are starving. Can you help? And that's the kind of reparations that we should pay. We shouldn't wait for the state to do it because people can't wait that long. But there are so many, many people suffering in this way. And if you or I help one or two people, it's really a drop in the bucket. So that's how wrongful these wars are. You know, the billions and billions are spent on the weapons and shipping the weapons and creating the weapons. And we're always pushing closer and closer toward a nuclear war because sooner or later those weapons are going to be used. But um, people don't 
get the encouragement to see with clarity what their real needs are. Billions that are spent on the weapons are needed, so desperately needed, to grapple with climate catastrophe and hungry people and homelessness. And it's now transferred to the Ukraine. I think that the propaganda that's been put forth in order to prevent people from discussing an alternative to the route that the United States has taken is, according to Chomsky, Noam Chomsky, one of the most renowned professors in the world, he says it's worse than anything that happened in the McCarthy era. It's, it's such a pronounced shutout, shutting out of any alternative points of view. And I, I certainly see that here in the United States in the mainstream news. There, you know, if people are seriously trying to challenge the perception of Russia and say that uh, the Russians might have had some not justification for the war, but some reason to feel provoked because of the encirclement of NATO. Uh, there's ridicule and scorn if anyone tries to challenge that very insistent point that um, Russia is purely acting as a belligerent and had no reason to think that their security issues were being challenged. And now we have NATO coming into the Pacific. Well, yes, and with uh, Sweden and Finland possibly coming into NATO. And, and so I think that it, much of this is a rehearsal, a practice run for the United States to go to war against China, as though somehow, you know, the United States, China, and Russia all must be lined up, and the U.S. has to pick which of the three is going to be the major world hegemon. Well, the traditional U.S. foreign policy would say, well, we know which one that is, us. But it's, it's crazy because if we don't learn how to collaborate and work together, we'll never solve climate catastrophe or problems related to pandemics. And it would be so simple to say, look, let's set aside some of our differences so that we can make some gains on the problems we all can't avoid and we face together. But, you know, that's what the United Nations would be intended for. But instead, the United Nations is reduced to irrelevance because of the veto power. And it seems to me that speculations that Vladimir Putin couldn't possibly survive the combined strength of sanctions and war making by European and uh, U.S. allies are not holding out. There are plenty of other countries that will say, well, we'll buy uh, what Putin wants to sell. And he doesn't seem as though he's going to be somebody who is ailing and unable to to go out in public. That doesn't seem to me to be the case. Just to finish, Kathy, going back to the United States, and I think of the, the millions and millions of, of poorer people in the United States, maybe homeless, not enough food, see all these trillions of dollars being spent sending weapons overseas. Well, the catch there, Jan, is the phrase, as they read the newspapers, because the, the literacy rates are not so great among some of the most impoverished people in the United States. And the news reading public isn't really all that impressive amongst the people that are well-educated. Very often when people turn toward mainstream media, they're turning there for entertainment or for sports or for, you know, titillating stories about celebrities. The analytical capacity is not strengthened, I don't think, by the mainstream media. 
And often demagogues like President Trump, former President Trump, and those who follow him are very able to manipulate an undereducated public. And I don't want to sound condescending. It's not people's fault if they're undereducated. It's, I think, a deliberate tactic on the part of controlling interests in this country to keep people diverted, to keep people unaware, and to prevent clarity. And I'm sorry to say that with the pandemic capacity for young children to gain skills in literacy and thinking skills and clarity has also been harmed. And that's true worldwide. So it's a it's a pretty dangerous time. And the role of social media? I'm not myself very encouraged by the soundbite type of analysis that often comes through in social media or the ability to use social media to engage in spiteful put-down and acidic comments and sort of a that binary thinking, I guess, is how you might refer to it. But on the other hand, I think many young people have been extremely adept at using social media to um, fight vigorously for causes they strongly believe in. I, I was riveted by young Hawaiians in the World Beyond War slash International Peace Bureau peace wave that happened last weekend, a 24-hour rolling a wave of people clamoring for options other than militarism to solve problems. And, wow, these young Hawaiians were terrific in covering their actions, and their actions were dynamic and clear, saying, we don't want our precious and sacred and beautiful land to be desecrated any longer by United States tanks and bombs and weapon practices. They've been sturdy and steady and so articulate, and they've used social media for that. And I thought the same was true in Guam, and I could see that so many of the younger group, when they use social media and their very naturally built-up skills, can kind of dance through layers of uh, uncertainty that people my age would feel if they're trying to get their ideas across. Jan, thank you. And also, if your listeners get a chance, the World Beyond War uh, annual conference promises to be quite good. It's No War 2022, uh, Regeneration and Resistance. And the idea is resistance promoted through regenerating the land. It'll really give us insights into these permaculture communities that don't want war to displace any more people or wreck the land any further. And if you have time for just one more thing, I I was so impressed to learn from a young man that I was working with earlier today who just come back from a trip to a suburb outside of Berlin that they were in touch with permaculturists who said there was soil in Germany that couldn't be used because it had been stamped down so thoroughly by the many, many, many forced marches of people who crossed that soil going to concentration camps or toward their death. So the soil is harmed by the war, and we have a responsibility to regenerate it. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Jan. Human rights activist, Kathy Kelly. A special winter concert to celebrate NADOC Week. Join Yampa Man and First Nations singer-songwriter Pitatu. Brett Lee's music is gentle, honest and from the hearts. 
Thursday, the 7th of July, 6 till 8pm at the Mount Waverley Community Centre, 47 Miller Crescent, Mount Waverley. This is a free concert, but bookings are essential. Go to Monash City Council and search festivals and events for Pitutu Winter Concert to get all the details and to make your booking. So many faces to see. Monash City Council is a 3CR supporter. Nobody here I know. So many places to be. On the program last week, journalist and author Fred Fuentes spoke about the recent summit of the Americas. Now to the final part of that interview, where Fred talks about the recent second round of elections for the new president of Colombia. Fred, the new president is Gustavo Petro, the country's first leftist president. What was the mood in Colombia which resulted in this win? Yeah, well, look, this is yeah truly a, a historic victory. You know, as as you point out, it's the first leftist, and like that's not aligned with the the sort of faction of of the uh, behind Alvaro Uribe. You know, a sort of a very very much a sort of a, a far right figure, a militarist figure, someone who's promoted war against you know obviously uh, supposedly against the guerrillas, but really a war on as a whole. But we've seen that the, the, despite that sort of long, long sort of history of war, both hot and cold, against the left. And finally, has been able to, well, not just the left win, the, the Uribe forces, that sort of conservative section of, is not even able to make it into the second round of these elections. So it really sort of shows a really important sort of breakdown of the sort of, a, you know, sort of traditional voting voting blocks in the country and a, a sort of a re-election that's underway. Of course, that doesn't mean that the, the hard right is gone. That doesn't mean that Uribe supporters have disappeared. They're, they're still there and they'll be waiting in the winds. And, you know, so much so that even on election night, you know, there was concerns about, well, would they be willing to? But in this case, they were. The results were very clear. And so what we have is, is yeah, a, a, a really a, a great celebratory moment. Well, of course, it's, it's the beginning of a long period of hard work uh, in terms of the, for the left in, in Colombia. It certainly is, and how do you believe he's going to tackle it? There's a lot of things stacked against him. You know, as I said, it's 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 a the country that, due to you know largely a civil war that's you know lasted for about fifty, sixty years, officially over, but even even then there's still there's still ongoing conflicts that occur um, in rural areas uh, with different guerrilla forces, and you know and should be mentioned that, that Petro himself was, was formerly a guerrilla, although he sort of, you know, renounced that. Instead, built up his political career, being mayor of, of Bogota, of, of, of the capital. But uh, I think it's going to be, it's going to be extremely difficult. It's not clear uh, how, how the relationships will be the, with the U.S. I mean, Colombia's by far been the, the key destination for U.S. Uh, military in the region. All of these factors are, are certainly uh, going to play. Uh, I think one certainly one positive is that his election result is not a unique phenomenon in the last period uh, because it you know we in Chile long ago as well um, the left um, you know arguably since Salvador Allende in the, in the 70s the first time a, a left wing president has been elected there as well and already they've expressed 
a lot of similarities in in their positions. You know, I think both Petro and Gabriel Boric in Chile, first are kind of a, you know, like almost like a, a new new left. If the wave of previous presidents like Hugo Chavez, Evo Morales, Nacio Lula da Silva in Brazil were the the new left, the pink tide, we, we see a, a sort of a new new left emerging. No, it's just which has its differences with that new left. Like certainly Petro has you know raised his criticisms of of, of what's been happening in Venezuela, uh, but but also you know they, and they share a lot of common issues as well. And how are they going to stop the paramilitary violence? Because it's just gone on forever and ever and it, it just doesn't seem to be stopping at all. This is going to be difficult and, 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 and unfortunately I don't believe that there's any any easy answers. We see that a similar thing with, with AMLO, with uh, Lopez Obrador in Mexico, where of course you know he wasn't and he hasn't been able to get the, the violence from the drug gangs uh, in Mexico, but yet he's been able to, to maintain support by the other social programs that, that he's been running. So I think that's going to be a key factor. I think some of the, you know, which have been so ingrained in the Colombian society are not going to disappear. But if, if people can get a sense that at least some change is beginning to happen, Petro will be able to at least, you know, consolidate his support and be able to use that as a launching pad for, for some of the bigger issues. But of course, you know, I think there'll be attempts to, you know, the, the, the peace negotiations with the ongoing guerrilla forces, that may be an avenue to really undermine the presence of, of the paramilitaries. Um, you know, that, that was, that's been a big part of what the left, or the, the urban left has always sort of said in Colombia, that the guerrilla war, whilst understandable, particularly in its origin, how it began, how communities in the rural areas, so at a certain point, became outdated and actually you know, ultimately benefited the, the hard right who could use it to demonize the left and to, to basically somewhat justify their paramilitary activities. So I think, I think that's going to be sort of the, the, the work that Petro will do. You know, he's, he's sort of um, probably, you know, three, three things, you know, consolidate his support for important social programs immediately, um, as quickly as he can, to sort of seek to finally put a, an end or, or to finally consolidate the, the, the peace negotiations um, with, with the remaining uh, guerrilla forces as much as possible. And I imagine a third aspect will be the, the border region with Venezuela, which is well, not exclusively the only area of paramilitary activity has, has been an important one in, in recent periods. How many US bases are there in Colombia? Well, look, uh, look th- th- of course, th- this is a disputed question. How do you define a US base? You know, some will say there's seven to nine, others will say none. Uh, but the, of course, the definition here is determined by, well, you know, is, is it a U.S. military base if the U.S. just use it to be based on, even if it's still technically a Colombian military base? So beyond the question of, you know, if how many uh, military bases, the relationship between the two militaries is going to be of, of crucial importance because, of course, the Colombian military is still the same Colombian military as it was the day before the election. And, you know, it has always played an important role in Colombian politics, and that's precisely why it's been such an important destination for U.S. military aid and joint training. So the role the Colombian military plays will be important, and how Gustavo Petro navigates that will will also be of of equal importance. But again, as with the other ones, these these are not not easy easy issues that can just be dealt with uh, overnight. Nevertheless, a great victory, Fred. 
Oh, absolutely, one one to celebrate. Even even a you know, no, of course, no doubt, everyone in Colombia um, who supports Petro knows that the hard work really begins now. But that's no reason at all to not be be celebrating today. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I've been speaking with journalist and activist Fred Fuentes. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.